Well, good morning, Orangewood. Remain standing this morning as I read Jesus' words to you and to me on who is truly blessed in this life and in the life to come. The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, begins this way. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? So Father, be near to us this morning. Remind us of your embrace. Father, make the beauty of Jesus and what he has done real to us again, or maybe for the first time. Holy Spirit, encourage convict and equip your church to be lights in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, If you are a guest with us, I am really glad you're here. Uh, You came on a great Sunday as we're in the sermon series called Blessed. Uh, looking at the words Jesus had for who has the good life, um, who is well off, and his invitation to you and me uh, to enter into the truly blessed life with him. And uh, today we're looking at this beatitude. Uh, It says this, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So understanding what mercy is is incredibly important because Jesus says to you and to me this morning, uh, this is who truly has a happy life. This is, this is who's truly blessed in this world is the people who understand mercy. But the question is, what does it mean? And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at. So we'll look first at the picture of mercy. What is it? Second, the prize with mercy. What do you get? Third, the posture to mercy. What is our response? And lastly, the power for mercy. How does this mercy change us? The picture, the prize, the posture, and the power. So let's look at the picture of mercy. 
uh, throughout the Bible, uh, this has been given, this invitation of mercy has been given to the people of God, that uh, this is what it means to be part of God's family, God's followers, is that uh, we would be people of mercy. We read this uh, in Micah, it says this, uh, we are to act justly and to love, what, mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, you may be saying, okay, man, sounds like that's really important, uh, but, but what is mercy? Is, is mercy the same thing as grace? Um, is, is mercy the same thing as kindness? What, what is mercy? Well, mercy means to be moved by empathy for the suffering of somebody else. This is, um, it's a rich word. Richard Linsky puts it this way. He says, mercy always deals with what we see of pain, misery, and distress, these results of sin. And grace always deals with the sin and guilt itself. Uh, So you could say it this way. Mercy responds to the effects of sin. Grace responds to the sin itself. So mercy is coming along and offering what may not be the natural reaction, it's offering something to the situation. Grace is, grace is responding to the situation. So I want to give you two quick stories of, of mercy and, and how one of it withholding mercy and the other giving mercy. Uh, the first one uh, comes from a news story that I read a couple years ago. Um, it, was, um, it was after a, a game uh, that the Detroit Lions were playing in, and, um, which means automatically it was a really bad game because the Detroit Lions haven't been good for years. Um, and the newspaper ran this article um, about a nine-year-old named Everett Coughlin. And Everett Coughlin uh, wanted to share um, his, his, his angst. Uh, he wanted to share his frustration uh, over uh, what had happened in the last game and particularly his issue with the referees in the last game that he watched of his beloved Detroit Lions. And he says this, quote, Dear NFL, my name is Everett Coughlin, And I am nine years old and I am a Detroit Lions fan. So you should already pray for him. My dream is to grow up to become an NFL player. However, my dream is on hold because of the bad refereeing and the Monday night game this past week. The Lions were fudged. And just to make sure it was actually fudged. And he didn't, you know, he's nine years old. Uh, That's the actual word. It's not another word. The Lions were fudged. On many calls that either should have been a penalty or shouldn't have. And I would just like to check in on the amount of training refs are receiving. If you are giving them a lot of training, then maybe you should consider taking them to an eye doctor. If you're not giving them the right amount of training, then we have a problem. You're frustrating people all over the country. There are many, many people who agree with me. I think we need a solution. Please write me back as soon as possible. Sincerely, Everett Coughlin. Um, so Everett wants nothing to do with mercy. Uh, he, I, I, you guys messed up. You need to fix it. You need to work it out. But whatever issues, uh, just a newsflash, my, my NFL dreams are on hold until uh, you guys get this thing figured out. And we can get to this place in our own lives. Uh, maybe not with referees, but 
there was someone who did something. There was someone who, who wronged us. There, there's, a, there's a place in our story of woundedness and hurt. And I want nothing to do with offering mercy. I want them to pay. Now, contrasting Everett's story with a man named Rod, uh, I read a story about a man named Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. Uh, Rod is a retired Lutheran uh, professor, seminary professor and pastor. And he shared the story about uh, he was... Uh, growing up, he was 16 years old, and he asked if he could take his dad's Buick 8, which I had to look up what a Buick 8 was, um, uh, an old classic car now. But he, he, he offered, uh, he asked his dad, can I take out the Buick 8 with my buddies uh, at 16? And he went out in this brand new Buick 8 uh, that belonged to his dad, and he had been drinking with his buddies and crashed the car. And then he had to make the phone call, that gut-wrenching phone call to dad and said, hey, dad, um, uh, the car is, is totaled. Um, his dad said, first, is, is everyone okay? Yes, everyone's okay. Um, dad came to pick him up. They, they got home that night. At some point in his torture and lament and his anguish, he, he went into his, his dad's study where he was sitting and just broke down and wept and, and confessed to his dad. We had been drinking. Uh, I was drunk behind the wheel and I shouldn't have and just lay on whatever punishment you want to. And in that moment, Rod says, the next thing my dad said to me is, how about tomorrow you and I go look for a new car together? That's mercy. That's mercy. Uh, Rod actually shares that um, that moment when he looks back on his life, where did I become a Christian? He said, Rod says that moment in that study where my dad says, uh, it's forgiven. He says, that's where I saw the gospel at the clearest place in my life that I came to faith. And Rod's gone on to write books and to lead others to faith. Um, but it's that moment of mercy with his dad that he looks back on and he says, I, 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 justice should have come down on me like an anvil. And in that moment, I got mercy. Uh, this is what mercy is. It's seeing the effects of sin and looking to do something about it. Uh, looking to step in and to meet the destruction and the brokenness I mean, there's stories all over uh, this past week of, of our Helping Hands Serve team and you helping neighbors and, and, and uh, people needing generators and, and people needing debris picked them there. I heard a story this past week of, of somebody in our church with their family. They were heading to another house to, to go serve someone uh, who needed help. And on their way to serving, they see another uh, church family working in someone else's yard. And on the way, they just stopped the car. They pulled, they got out. They, they worked for 45 minutes on that yard. And then they got back in. They went working. I mean, it's, uh, folks, that's mercy. That's, that's being a part of what God is doing. And, and this leads to the reward that Jesus says for that kind of life that's available to you and me. He, he talks about the prize 
with mercy. Uh, look at what Jesus says again. He says, blessed are the merciful. And this last part, he says this, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Jesus tells us there, there's this a prize that you and I will receive. We will be shown mercy. And, and what we have to understand is this promise that Jesus is making to these first century followers of him on that hillside in Galilee um, was completely counterculture to what was going on in that world. The, the idea of offering mercy in the first century uh, was, was not something that was seen as virtuous. In fact, the Roman system, the Roman Empire ruled all the known world at the time. Uh, the Roman system wanted nothing to do with mercy. Um, anyone who, who, who operated from a place of mercy was seen as weak and non-virtuous in the Roman system. Uh, in fact, today we hear a verse like this, blessed are the merciful. And many people, even in our culture, would still say, oh, that's a wonderful virtue. Even if it means not following Jesus, that's a great virtue to have. But what they don't realize is our culture, seeing that as virtuous, came from from Christianity's influence. In the first century, no one in the Roman system would have ever said that was virtuous. This is, this is how some of the Roman philosophers put it. They said this, mercy, listen, mercy is, quote, the disease of the soul, end quote. Uh, the Roman system uh, saw mercy as a complete sign of weakness. They, they, the Roman system loved justice, loved justice, um, but saw mercy as what weak people do. I'll, I'll give you another example of this in the Roman system. In the ancient world, there was a rule called the patria potestas, if I said that right in Latin, but it means the power of the father. Simply when, when a child was born into the family, uh, the servants would take that newborn child, they would hold that child up to the father. The father would give a thumbs up that means that child would live. If that child was born and held up, most likely a girl in that time. And if he put a thumbs down, that means the servants would immediately take that child and would drown that child. I mean, the, the Roman system had no concept of this idea of mercy. And into this system... There's a rabbi who has walked onto the scene and he says to you and me, the truly happy ones in this life are those who are merciful. But notice also Jesus says that true transformation, what it looks like, was also completely different from the religious system of the day. So Jesus says the Roman system had no concept for this idea of mercy and the religious system had misapplied what mercy looks like because the Jewish religious leaders of the day uh, were constantly being rebuked by Jesus because they were so externally focused on the obedience outwardly, not on what is happening inwardly. The, the, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day uh, were, were completely caught up with the facade of the house while inwardly 
the house had not been cleaned for years. And so this is the point Jesus is going to be harping on the whole Sermon on the Mount is, okay, on the outside, everything looks okay. But the question is, what is happening inwardly? What's happening with your character? Who are you becoming? Are, are, if you follow me, I will show you how to become the kind of person who is truly blessed in this life. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is speaking to these Jew, Jewish religious leaders and saying, you, you've missed it. You've missed it. It's not who you are on the outside. It's what's happening on the inside. Um, have you ever seen a house you pass by and it's just absolutely gorgeous on the outside? The, the lawn is beautiful, manicured. Um, it, you know, the house is painted well. And then somehow, for some reason, you happen to go inside the house of this, this house one day, but you walk in, it's like, it is an absolute mess. I mean, clothes are everywhere, foods everywhere, dirty dishes are everywhere. And you know, someone's saying, Tyler, that's, why are you talking about my house? Uh, a couple months ago, I had to go in for a, uh, a routine dentist appointment. And while I was there, they were just looking at my new photos, scans that they had taken of, of my, my teeth. And as we finished the uh, appointment and I was rebuked for how little I floss, um, the, the dentist said, um, hey, I think I want to have you back. Um, I'm looking at this, this image and something just, it, it could be nothing. It could be nothing. But I, I just want you to come back so I can just look under this tooth um, because what I'm seeing in the images just doesn't look right. And so a couple weeks, I, I go back to see the dentist and he starts excavating a, an old cavity filling from years ago. And once he got underneath it, I said, hey, what, was it nothing? Uh, it was, you know, just, just, you know, good maintenance check. And he's like, oh, no, no, your tooth was rotting away from the inside. And, uh, and I said, well, well, what, what happened? And he said, you're the previous dentist did not get out all of the decay before he put on the filling. That's a good dentist. But that's the story of our lives, that underneath what is happening, is there an, a transformation happening? Everything else on the outside could look fine. What is happening on the inside? Jesus, um, he tells a parable uh, about the kind of person we need to be and the warning of what can happen if we don't become a person of mercy. Uh, Jesus tells a parable about a servant um, who goes to their master. Uh, uh, they have a debt that they cannot pay, uh, a debt that they owe, and they go to the master and they say, Master, Master, please uh, be merciful to me. And the, the master in this parable is merciful. He, he forgives the debt, wipes away the debt. And the parable almost talks as if he walks out of meeting with the master and then he goes to uh, an employee of his who, who, is, who owes him a debt. And this, this servant is asking him, please, please forgive my debt. Please, please this debt I owe. And he will not forgive that debt. And this is how uh, he talks about it in Matthew 18. He says this. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on a fellow servant just as I had had on you? In anger, in anger his master handed over him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. So the religious system missed the prize 
because it was not concerned about the change on the inside, the change of heart. It was simply about the externals. And so you may be asking, well, how do I know that I am changed, transformed on the inside? How do I know I'm actually becoming a person of mercy? Well, that's our third point, the posture to mercy. Uh, I've found through the years, I've had many conversations. I actually really enjoy these conversations. Conversations with people who struggle with Jesus, faith, Christianity, uh, people who call themselves skeptics. I love these conversations because they, one, they're completely honest with you. They don't care who you are. Um, and and, and they, they ask some of the greatest questions. And I, and I walk away sometimes, hey, I, you know, that's a question I need to think about. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but one thing I found in these conversations with skeptics is, is you come back again and again to this question of who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? Uh, we, we, whatever, wherever we are in the conversation, the route always leads back to, well, who, who do you think Jesus was? And, and this is the answer in many, many different forms that I will get is, uh, oh, Jesus, he's a great man, great man, did a lot of great things. I just think he wasn't who he, people said he was. I, I just think that he, he wasn't really God. I just think that uh, people got carried away. Some form of that, of what, who was Jesus and, and why, was he, why was he worshiped and why they don't think he should have been worshiped, but they think that he was a really great guy. That's, that's basically the gist of it. And the interesting point is we, we come back to that every time, but I will end up saying to them some version of this. Do you realize that we don't see any instance of that of people who encountered Jesus in the Bible. Uh, people that encountered Jesus, no one said uh, Jesus was a good man, and that he, but he wasn't God. They, they either had this one phrase. They either said to Jesus, Jesus, let me be, or God, have mercy on me. Those are the two ways that you see it. Uh, one, in various forms, people said, Jesus, let me be. Uh, from the rich young ruler who uh, did not want Jesus's invitation for what to do with his wealth um, to the religious leaders who disagreed with Jesus's interpretation on the law uh, to the crowd that gathered and said, crucify him. Jesus, let me be. And this was the response of people that Jesus pressed in and asked those questions. What's the deepest affections of your heart? What truly rules your life? Will you follow me? And this is what they said. Jesus, let me be. Jesus, let me be. But the other response that we see throughout the gospels in many forms was essentially this. God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. From the blind men who sought Jesus to heal them, from the Jewish outcast woman seeking his forgiveness, from the non-Jewish outcast woman seeking healing for her daughter, to the hated tax collector who stood in the temple and said, beat his chest and said, God have mercy on me. In all the gospels, in various instances, and, and what is interesting about all these scenarios is it's usually not the people who had it all together. Um, it usually wasn't the people uh, who, who had the look of being with Jesus that you would have thought. It, it was to take the image of a cup. The cup was chipped. The cup was dirty on the outside. 
Uh, these were the people who hadn't figured out their religion. They didn't know where Leviticus was in the Bible. And it says those people who cried out in desperation that said, God, have mercy on me. Those were the people who found the truly blessed life. Uh, these are the ones that God declared in the right. These are the ones who were experiencing God's kingdom. Uh, these are the ones who are following Jesus with no agenda, just asking Jesus, Jesus, I cannot fix this issue in my life. Jesus, I cannot forgive this person in my life, but through you, you can give me the power I need. God, have mercy on me. Asking him to deliver you of whatever addictions ail you that you cannot fix in your own strength. Asking him for the grace to walk with you. Two responses are what you see in the gospels. Just two. Jesus, let me be. And God, have mercy on me. The question this morning is where are you? Where are you? Um, when, when Rachel and I we uh, were living in Michigan. Um, we were in Michigan for 10 years. And uh, in, in Michigan, you found yourself at the, the mall a lot in Michigan um, because winter lasted like half, half a year in Michigan. So you were always at the mall and they had really nice malls and they had really big malls in Michigan. And one time Rachel and I went uh, together, just the two of us, and we were walking around uh, one of these malls there, and, uh, and, um, which meant, you know, Rachel was shopping and I was being tortured. Um, but uh, we were walking around this mall and uh, she said to me at one point, hey, I'm just going to hang out in this store, quote, just a little bit longer. And, uh, you know, a little bit longer turned into a lot longer. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm going to go on a walkabout. So I just went up and down, just walking around uh, this mall and it's pretty big. And, and Rachel will tell you this, uh, this isn't, this isn't, this is true. This is a true boast. I actually am very, very good with directions. I know usually where I am most of the time, but in this mall, for some reason, the way it was structured, I got lost, but the mall has this really great feature. It has this directory on it. And it has all the different stores and where the stores are located. And then they have this little arrow on that directory. And that directory uh, arrow that tells you what? You are here. You are here. And it's this great moment of refreshing reality. No matter how lost you feel. No matter if <laughs> you have no idea what store you are next to. You know that arrow is pointing you back to reality. You are here. And the question this morning is where are you? Where are you with God's mercy? Jesus Jesus, let me be. I've got it. Or like that tax collector, broken, broken by life, who beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And if we're honest, we find ourselves kind of navigating through both postures in life, if we're honest. Uh, most of the time we may, we may not say it out loud, but just the sheer fact of our existence, if the arrow, uh, direct the arrow of our life was pointing in on us, we, we, we recognize our life is basically saying in many ways, God, just let me be, I've, I've got this. If, if, if I'm in need at some point, I will let you know. 
Um, if, if I need something, don't worry, I got this. And what I have found through the years, at least in my own experience, God in his kindness, God in his kindness will send something into your life. And usually it is something you can name because it becomes very clear to you. It's something you can name. And if you can't think of it, don't worry, it's coming. But God in his kindness will allow the boat of self-reliance to be rocked in the storm of life to such a point that you and I will have nothing left except to finally say, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. This is the posture that God blesses, that God longs for you to know an ever-increasing reality that, that you would experience throughout your days, a sense of waking up in the morning and being able to say, God, have mercy on me today. God, have mercy. To, to end your day, God, have mercy on me today. But how do we get there? How do we get there? That's our final point, the power for mercy. So I have a confession to make. I lied to you. Um, it's a lie kind of like, I think, a spouse who has a surprise birthday coming for another spouse. But I lied to you. There's not only two responses to Jesus. There's actually three. Jesus, let me be. God, have mercy on me. And I think this last one, can Christ have mercy on me? This question you almost kind of live in with, with how I've lived my life, with the regrets that I carry, with the things that I've done, with the things that I've said, with, the, with my inability to forgive others. Uh, can Christ have mercy on me? That we need to be reminded again this morning, it is so easy for us to forget the depths that Jesus would go to show you his mercy. Um, many of you have known through the past 10 years or so, Aleppo, Syria has been in the news. It's one of the most dangerous and tormented cities in the whole world. Uh, it's been the home base for opposition uh, to the Syrian president, Bashar al-Assad. And al-Assad, uh, his response to this opposition to his rule uh, has been to bomb Aleppo over and over. Um, to bomb the city with airstrikes. And uh, these bombings have meant that many, many people in Aleppo were buried alive under the rubble of these airstrikes. And so the prevailing fear of many of the residents in Aleppo was not only that they would end up being bombed, but that they would be bombed in a building where they would be buried alive. And so in Aleppo, there was a volunteer group of people known as the Syrian Civil Defense. Uh, this group became named uh, the White Helmets, men and women, part of this volunteer group. And this group, I have an image we'll show you, uh, their job was to run in immediately into the blast zone whenever a bomb hits to begin digging with their hands people out of the rubble. They hear a blast and they run in. 60 Minutes documented a story on Aleppo and the White Helmets, and they described the scenes this way, quote, the airstrikes obliterate the apartments and shatter the nerves of the people. Often the bombs are not aimed at military targets. 
They're actually not aimed at all. Just a barrel of shrapnel and TNT heaved from a helicopter onto any neighborhood that the Hassad dictatorship does not control, end quote. There are up to 300,000 people who have been trained as white helmets in Syria to run in to pull people out. I mean, it's extremely dangerous work because what happens is when one bomb goes off, they run into the building. But what they know is there's usually going to be a second bomb somewhere in that vicinity that is also going to go off. So they could end up being in the blast zone as they go in to care and save for these lives. Uh, Rady, uh, who is one of the white helmets, he said this. In every mission, there is a 50% chance I'll live and a 50% chance that I'll die. But in the end, I've left my mark. I've left children who are going to live and complete our future. Hundreds of white helmets have lost their lives running into blast zones to clear others from the rubble. But this does not deter this group who run in immediately, immediately and start digging with their hands to reach people who are buried underneath. And to date, as far as I can tell, over 115,000 lives have been saved by this group and their ability to run in. One of the white helmets commented and asked, why do you do this? Why do you do this? And they said this, quote, every time we have pulled someone from the rubble, we feel as if we have brought someone back to life, end quote. I love that. And what I love about that is that is the picture of what Jesus has done for everyone here. Jesus is not only the true ruler of Syria, but he is the true ruler of this universe. And he did not send down bombs and judgment for you. Rather, he entered the mess of this world for you and for me. On the cross, he allowed all the evil to come crashing down on him. He entered the mess, the brokenness of this world so that you through him would experience resurrection life. You through him would experience resurrection power. And through that, you would find the eternal kind of life in his mercy to offer mercy to others. That's how resurrection works in you. That you and I get a glimpse of who we truly are in him and what he has already done. And that that resurrection causes us to become a kind of people who offers mercy to this world. When we see that what Jesus did, that he entered the rubble for us, that he, that he grabbed us, that he took us out, that he offers us and declares upon us a new destiny, a new identity, a new way that you and I now have a new perspective because the old ways of the world are dying and we have been raised to new life in him because of his mercy. Paul put it this way in Ephesians. He says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us 
in Christ Jesus. Friends, don't you see this is the power you and I need to become people of mercy. The power that comes from the one who entered the rubble for us, not only to set us free, not only that we were buried, but we were, we were dead. And through that power, he raised us to life. Friends, don't ever doubt the depths that God would go to shower mercy on you. Don't ever doubt the depths that God will go and the depths that he will dig to bring you back to life. Can Christ have mercy on me? Jesus would say, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look, look at what I've done. What, what, other, what other answer do you need? to the depths that I will go, that to the rubble that I will enter to bring you back to life? What other answer do you need that I stand with my arms wide open this morning to receive you again and to show you mercy? Uh, there's an Englishman named John Stocker in 1776 and he penned these words in him. You may have heard it. He says this, Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of the mercy I've found. Will you stand as we close? Friends, have you found the mercy to the level and depth that John Stocker talks about as him? Dissolved by his goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of the mercy I've found. Have you been overwhelmed by the darkness and the rubble and the chaos and the brokenness of this world that Jesus would enter to set you free. Can you say this morning, maybe for the first time, God have mercy on me. God have mercy on me. Jesus says, happy are those who have. Truly blessed are those who have. For they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. So Father, we, we need your spirit to work in us and through us that we could become aware for the first time or, or maybe in a long time of the depths you would go for us. To, 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 to see your mercy in its beauty again this morning. And the new life you offer us today with you. And so spirit, raise up the dead parts in us today. So that we could receive your mercy. And that we can give it. To those in our lives. We pray this in Jesus name and everyone said, amen. Amen.